This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. This just in, you are looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. I just witnessed a plane that appeared to be cruising uh, slightly lower than normal altitude over New York City, and it appears to have crashed into... Uh, I don't know which tower it is, but it hit directly in the middle of uh, one of the World Trade Center towers. The plane just uh, was was uh, coming in low, and the t- wingtips tilted back and forth, and then it, it flattened out. It looks like it uh, hit at a slight angle into the World Trade Center. I can see I can see flames now coming out the side of the building, and smoke continues to billow. Looks like six, seven floors were taken out. And there's more oh, explosions right now. Hold on, people are Hold on just a moment. We've got an explosion inside. The building's that... exploding right now. you got people running up the street. Okay. Hold on, I'll tell you what's going on. Okay, just uh, put, put Winston on pause there for just a moment. Okay, the whole building just exploded some more. The whole top part. Okay. The building's still intact. People are running up the streets. You are looking at this, at this picture. It is the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. Both of them being damaged by impacts from planes. We saw one happen at about maybe nine minutes before the top of the hour. And just moments ago, so maybe 18 minutes after the first impact, the second tower was impacted with a, by another, what appeared to be another passenger plane. That's absolutely inexplicable. There, there shouldn't be any aircraft in that area, much less something heading what looked like deliberately for the world. Welcome to a special edition of The Conspiracy Show as we commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, September 11th, 2001. Now, I'm going to revisit some conversations I've had with 9-11 researchers and whistleblowers over the years who will offer up radically different versions of what happened on that infamous day. Within three hours, New York's tallest buildings were reduced to rubble And the Pentagon, the nerve center of the American armed forces, was burning and partially collapsed. Thousands of civilians had lost their lives and were seriously injured. And the entire continent was in collective shock, still trying to make sense of how 
a supposed coordinated act of terrorism of that magnitude was allowed to take place on American soil. In this hour, the late journalist, best-selling author Jim Mars joined me back on the 15th anniversary of 9-11. I also spoke to Dr. Judy Wood back in 2016. She's a materials engineer and author of Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11. And then, in the second hour, we go back to 2012 and my conversation with the late Phil Marshall, a Boeing 767 captain and former special activities contract pilot. Marshall authored The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. And finally, in hour two, a more recent conversation with a U.S. federal agent, Timothy McNiven, who alleges he was part of a secret military study group that unwittingly planned the 9-11 terrorist attacks 25 years before it happened. First up, Jim Mars was an award-winning journalist and had over 30 years' experience with several Texas newspapers. In 1999, Jim began teaching a course on UFOs, perhaps one of the first university-level UFO courses in the nation. He also investigated the U.S. Army's remote viewing program three years before it was publicly acknowledged by the CIA and then published Alien Agenda. In addition, his book Rule by Secrecy has been termed an underground bestseller. He also authored The Terror Conspiracy, Deception, 9-11, and The Loss of Liberty. Let's go back to September 11th, 2016. Jim Mars, welcome. How are you, my friend? Hey, Richard. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. Here we are, 15 years on. Those of us that are still concerned about it, most of us, but it's kind of divided into a number of camps. There's the nanothermite, the controlled demolition camp. There are those who steadfastly cling to the official version. Two planes slammed into the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. 15 years on, have, has your position oh, oh, moved? All right. Are you ready? Are you ready for the answer? I am. The answer is yes. All of the above. <laughs> All right. So this is, this is why, Richard. I don't understand why that the. Uh, I mean, we're having trouble enough getting the uh, great unwashed masses out there to understand that two aircraft cannot bring down three buildings. Okay, and they and you go and they go what. And you go, yeah, Building 7, the Solomon Brothers building, you know, it collapsed at 5.30 on the afternoon of September the 11th, 2001. And uh, it was not hit by airplanes. And they go, what? Because a lot of people, I mean a lot of people, are still unaware that three buildings went down in New York. So we have problems enough right there without squabbling amongst ourselves over, was it thermite, was it nanothermite, was it conventional cutters, was it nukes, was it particle beam weapons, energy-directed weapons, because the answer is yes. (laughs) Okay, I'm pretty convinced, Richard, that they used a combination of exotic technology, much of which is not known to the public, which is what allowed them to pull off the 9-11 attack, the 9-11 terrorist operation, and uh, get away with it. Because uh, not only were they using nanothermite, which is not generally known except to the building demolition experts, um, they were also using um, small uh, shape-charged nukes, 
And if people think, well, that's impossible, because, see, most people think of a nuclear bomb, they think of that picture of Little Boy that we dropped on Hiroshima, and it was, you know, this great, big, huge, fat-looking bomb. Right. But uh, I recall when I was a kid in the 50s, uh, seeing newsreels where they were shooting atomic artillery shells. They had a big old cannon they called the Long Tom, and they would fire that cannon, and then 10 miles downrange, they would, there would be a small tactical nuclear explosion. So they had uh, nukes the size of artillery shells, which is, what, maybe two or three foot long, and, uh, oh, a foot or two around. Okay, that was in the 50s. So the idea that today they have many nukes that uh, are about the size of a small basketball or maybe an enlarged baseball or softball, you know, that that they have those. This is the current technology. We just, the popular, the uh, public is not popularly aware of that, okay? So you put this, you put these mini nukes in the basement where there is plenty of testimony that there were explosions in the basements of the World Trade Center towers. Okay, um, the uh, I believe it was uh, uh, Mike Picararo who said that he went up uh, uh, up through the basements after being knocked down by an explosion. That was a janitor, right? Yes, and uh, went to a machine shop, and there was a huge drill press that had been just disintegrated. Okay, now you take those mini uh, nukes, you put them in the basement with a shape charge. They take out those forty-seven steel girders that are the spindle, the the prop, the that hold up those buildings. This would allow them to come down. Then you use your thermite to take care of all of the support. Uh, beams, and then you use your conventional cutter charges to take care of the rest, and the whole thing would just totally collapse uh, because there is no, uh, there's nothing holding up the weight. Now this is what happens, okay? But now also you have to ask yourself, what about the toilets? <laughs> Let's talk toilets for a minute. There weren't have any. You ever tried there weren't to any. Destroy a toilet? Exactly. You know, you can beat on it, you smash it to pieces, you can kick it all around, but it's not easy to destroy a toilet. And think how many toilets were in this 110-story building. Think how many metal filing cabinets were mm-hmm. in that building. The telephones. What happened? Did you ever to all see a telephone? No. No. Now you got a 110-story building, and and it got hit by a plane. It caught fire and it collapsed. That's what we're told. It should have left a debris pile of more than 10 stories. Mm-hmm. And yet, all we saw was less than two stories, and it was just a few desultory ruins and debris. What happened to all of the mass of those buildings? Obviously, there was something else going on, and uh, I don't think we should rule out Judy Wood or others who talk about um a directed energy weapon because I know we're working on that. In fact, Richard, I'm going to cut you in on a little secret, you and your uh, listeners. Now, what is it? Okay, Judy Wood actually makes, and I've met her and talked with her, interviewed her, and she makes a, a very cogent argument uh, for a some sort of a um, energy weapon. Uh, the place where I think she's theorizing and, and may have caused her some trouble is because she, as I recall, she was saying that she thought 
it may have come from a space-based weapon from a satellite. Okay? I, without going into a long song and dance, I have very good reason to believe that a particle beam disintegrator type weapon was being developed at uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory on Long Island in the center of the island there. Okay? In 1989, this weapon was tested and used to bring down a UFO. Uh, in 1992, it was tested again and brought down a UFO that crashed in South Haven Park and, cr and caused a huge big fire there that actually made national news. But, of course, they didn't mention the UFO. They just said it was a big fire. Uh, in 1996, I believe, it, this same weapon was tested uh, 65 miles out uh, southeast of Long Island uh, at a test area designated Tango Billy and it was a military exercise where they shot a missile at a drone aircraft and the purpose of the test of course what they've been trying to do for years see if they could stop a missile in flight and so they fired the missile at the drone and the disintegrator beam, the particle beam accelerator from Brookhaven was used to see if they could stop that missile. Unfortunately, the TWA-800, ah. which had had a minor, minor malfunction and right. was late taking off, climbed into the trajectory of this beam weapon and was knocked down in friendly fire. That was the TWA-800. And, of course, they couldn't admit to what happened there because that was our most top-secret weapons testing. Okay, But everybody with the TWA told the truth. People who said there was a missile, there was. People who saw a drone aircraft or a mystery aircraft, there it was. People who saw a light in the sky, that was the beam weapon. So everybody, even the government told the truth to a limited degree. They said a spark got in a central fuel tank and uh, blew up the airplane, which is true. But why did the spark get in a central fuel tank? And it's because the beam weapon hit the aircraft and fried the onboard computers, and everything was sparking and flashing, and valves were opening and closing, and that's how the spark got in the fuel tank. Now, that was the TW-800. Now... If they could use that as an disintegrator beam, and they could use it uh, at a target 65 miles to the southeast, all I, su I suggest, all they had to do was turn that weapon a little further south, and it's only 25 miles to the World Trade Center buildings. And I think that was what was used to spray those buildings and disintegrate. You, you mentioned yourself uh Richard, the fact that there are films showing steel girders that do not fall over, they simply disintegrate in midair. Dustification is what she calls it. Yeah, like a like an Elka Seltzer tablet in a glass of water. Yep. And it just it just it just blows blows away, it disintegrates. And that's why so what happened on 9-11 is they were using exotic technology only known in the inner circles of the military-industrial complex, and therefore they could come out with any screwy uh, cover story, uh, something along the lines of the single bullet theory, and nobody was in a position to say, well, no, that's not right, because here's what it was, because we didn't know. 
And I'll tell you another thing. There was an exotic technology was not known at the time that was used on 9-11 that's very important to understand how that happened. And that is the com- remote computer capture of onboard uh, flight computers on aircraft. All right, Back tell me more. In the 1980s, I was in, uh, interviewing a pilot for a commercial airliner, and uh, after the interview, we were just talking, and he said, you know, my job's redundant. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, the, these new planes, these new wide-bodied Boeing jets, said uh, they, they're, they're fly-by-wire, they're fly-by-computer. Mm-hmm. You know, the computer flies the airplane. He said, I'm just there in case the computer breaks. And so I'm going, wow, you know, so I did some study. Well, come to find out this is true. Now, here's a bad analogy, but if you're using a CB radio and you're talking to somebody and I come along uh, and I have a much stronger CB signal than you, then that's what they call I step on you, okay? Right, right. The person listening is going to hear me. They're not going to hear you because my signal is stronger. They can take stronger signals, and they can intercept an airplane's computer, and they can enter that computer, take over the computer. In fact, uh, in my book, The Terror Conspiracy Revisited, I quote uh, the head of British Airways, who in early 2001 said, you know, the era of of, uh, airline hijacking is over with. He said, because now we can capture the onboard computer remotely and we can guide the aircraft to a safe landing regardless of the desires of the hijackers or even the flight crew. Judy has had a conversation with a pilot, I believe it was, saying the exact same thing. That back in the 70s, it almost became a cliche. It was every week there was a plane being hijacked and diverted to Cuba. Yeah, uh, and and she went back and she said in 1974 there were 50 planes hijacked and diverted to places like Cuba. Then all of a sudden, at some point, late 70s, early 80s, it stopped. And what you're talking about, that's the reason. That's that the reason. Standard equipment on Boeing uh, aircraft, pilot what punches in a code, and uh, he hears someone pounding on the door, "Let us in, we're taking over." He punches in that code, or she punches in that code. And now the control of the airplane goes to the tower. That's right. There's and nothing there's a hijacker can do. Nobody can control that airplane. You cannot hijack a modern air, uh, airplane. That's true. By the way, and then to add insult to injury, uh, pilots uh, for 9-11 Truth managed to get hold of some of the black box recordings on the flight that uh, uh, that they said hit the Pentagon. And what they found was in all the parameters there that the uh, flight uh, deck door had not been opened during flight. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> if the flight deck door hadn't been opened, how did the how did Honey Honjor get in the cockpit and guide that plane to the Pentagon? Exactly. Of course, of course the ball-faced fact is, is that no plane hit the Pentagon. There were 82 Social Security cameras all on and around the Pentagon. And that afternoon, before the afternoon, before the sun went down, the FBI had grabbed all of that 
and we have never seen any of it. Well, we saw one sort of very fragmented video. I don't know if it 16, came from a from, 15 frames. Yeah, from a shell station or something across the road. Right. And what I love is I remember watching Bill O'Reilly, and for two or three days he was saying, we now have the film of the plane hitting the Pentagon, and we'll put to rest all of these crazy conspiracy theories, and we're going to show that tomorrow night or whatever. And, and then they actually ran those 16 frames, and then Bill O'Reilly himself said, I didn't see a plane. <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. The other uh, don't. while we talk- don't see a plane. Uh, also, let me mention this. Richard, you know as well as I do, after every major air disaster, they come along and they pick up every single little piece of that aircraft that they can find, and they take it to a big hangar, and they reassemble it, okay? Right. So that they can try to determine what exactly caused that crash so we can prevent future occurrences. Show me a picture of the debris of uh, that flight that they said hit the Pentagon put together in a hangar, and I will shut up about the Pentagon. But you haven't seen it, and you're not going to see it because there was no plane involved. Well, we all remember, and many of us remember, uh, at least while it was available, and I, it may still be online, I'm not sure. I'm talking about the CNN reporter Jamie McIntyre, who was on the scene. Right. Uh, and said there is no evidence. This Again, you always pay attention to the early reports. I learned this from you years ago, Jim. You you pay attention to those early reports because then they disappear. You'll never hear again, hear right. from them again. Jamie McIntyre on the scene saying no, re- no evidence of a plane crash hitting a building here. And uh, we saw the footage. And again, out on the, uh, the front lawn there, the Pentagon, no debris. No debris. No. So what happened? Did, did some except some except for Donald Rumsfeld running along with a little bitty piece he's holding his hand, and of course I always wonder, you know, did he pick it up or was he putting it down? <laughs> right. So what what happened there? Did a, some Hercules transport plane come by and and drop this stuff on the front lawn? Oh, they they had a they had a few pieces ready to go. You know this. Uh, uh, it, it, this was actually a, a very well-planned operation. Unfortunately, it didn't come off exactly as they wanted it to. Uh, I think something happened. Uh, the plane went down in Pennsylvania. I think that plane was the one that was uh, supposed to hit uh, uh, Building 7. And so that didn't happen. So at 5:30 that afternoon, suddenly they decided, well, we 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 got to get rid of the evidence because that's where their command center was. So they dropped Building Seven. That's after, and I have seen the films, newsreels of the firemen coming down the street, going, "Get back, get back!" The building's coming down. How did they know it's coming down? There was only a few desultory fires in a few of the in a couple of the. Uh, floors, not enough to bring down a building. That building came down straight down in its own footprint in a matter of seconds. Free fall speed. The only way that can happen is with pre-planned demolition. And if Building 7 was brought down by demolition, as stated by Larry Silverstein, he said we decided to pull it, so we pulled it. Okay? And if that was brought down by controlled demolition, then why is it so outrageous to claim that the World Trade Centers were brought down by controlled demolition? Coming up next, my conversation with materials engineer Dr. Judy Wood, author of Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11. 
Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of The Conspiracy Show as we commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Now, whatever you think happened on that day, you have to agree that there are so many questions that remain unanswered as to how the greatest air defense system in the history of mankind was somehow circumvented, exactly who was involved. Uh, so many questions, perhaps chief among them, how were the World Trade Center towers brought down? The World Trade Center buildings, Building 7 and others, it wasn't just the North and South Towers, remember. Was it the impact of, of the jetliners and, and the heat generated from the jet fuel that caused some sort of a structural failure? That's sort of the official version. Uh, but was it, is it possible there was something else involved? Some other technology, perhaps? Well, this, of course, will be the subject at our live event I just mentioned on September the 11th when Dr. Judy Wood comes to town for an exclusive engagement. Uh, but she is here tonight, uh, to, to dive into this a little bit. And, uh, it's a great pleasure to have. It's been quite a while since I've had Dr. Judy Wood on the program. She's, uh, uh, a PhD, a degree from Virginia Tech, a former professor of mechanical engineering. She's researched expertise in experimental stress analysis, structural mechanics, uh, deformation analysis, materials characterization, and materials engineering science. Her research has involved testing materials, including complex material systems, in the area of photomechanics, or the use of optical and image analysis methods, to determine physical properties of materials and measure how materials respond to forces placed on them. Her area of expertise involves inferometry in forensic science. Uh, she taught graduate and undergraduate engineering classes and, and has authored or co-authored over 60 peer-reviewed papers and journal publications in her areas of expertise. In the time since 9-11, she has applied her expertise in material science, image analysis, uh, as I mentioned, and uh, a forensic study of over 40,000 images, hundreds of video clips, a large volume of witness testimony, analysis of dust samples, seismic data, and the analysis of other environmental evidence pertaining to the destruction of the World Trade Center complex. And Dr. Wood has conducted a comprehensive forensic investigation of what physically happened to the World Trade Center site on 9-11. And based on her analysis of the evidence she gathered in 2007, she filed a federal case for science fraud against the contractors who contributed to the official National Institute of Standards and Technology report about the destruction of the World Trade Center towers. This case was filed in the U.S. Supreme Court in December 2009. And to this day, Dr. Wood's investigation and body of evidence is compiled in her book, Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11. It's the only comprehensive forensic investigation in the public domain. Dr. Judy Wood, how are you? Very good. Well, thank you for having me. And it has been, I'm guessing, well, the book came out in, uh, was it 2007, did we say? Uh, well, it was written back around then, but it was 2010. Let me ask you first off. Now, this book obviously generated a lot of, of controversy. Uh, anytime anyone delves into 9-11 and is exploring perhaps, you know, alternative explanations rather than the official explanation, it's bound to generate controversy. But the interesting thing is, is here, even within sort of the 9-11 truther movement, 
it created such controversy. I mean, you were disavowed by uh, the 9-11 Truther movement, which I find, well, not, you know what, it's not surprising. It's such a divisive community. I mean, if you're not with them, sort of 100%, then you're against them, which is my understanding. I've, I've experienced that firsthand. But why specifically do you think, uh, even within the 9-11 Truther movement, you're such a controversial um, person? Well, I don't know if, uh, if controversial is the right uh, the right term for it. <clears throat> controversial is usually a term given uh, that implies doubt. You know, wh- whether someone is talking about facts or, or fiction. And uh, anything that I've discussed, and it's in my book as well, is just evidence, an analysis of the evidence as well as parallel evidence. So if someone doesn't want you to discuss the evidence, what do they do? Distract you. It's kind of like the political uh, scene. You know, they don't want you to discuss the facts. They they say, oh, you have uh, uh, boogers up your nose or something. Right, you know, right. They, they take it off into something unrelated to the evidence. <clears throat> but if you just talk about the evidence, if somebody really wants to know the truth, they shouldn't have a problem with it. Precisely, precisely, and yet they do, which... So what does that tell you? Well, it it suggests a number of things. One, that the group has been infiltrated by disinformation uh, agents. Uh, I mean, that's uh, that's the one that leaps immediately to mind. Uh, and, and the other thing is, which I've come to, to realize, is that the whole controlled demolition theory has become almost like a religion. Now, I have a, a lot of respect for people like Dr. Richard Gage. He's been on the program, and I think he's he's doing his, his, his best to try to piece this puzzle together. But if if you suggest that it may not be controlled demolition, it's almost like you become an immediate pariah. They don't want to hear anything else. And I think it's because when people have so much um, invested in a theory, they almost become defined by it. And if you take that away from them, then who are they? What are they? And that's very threatening to them. It's almost like a self-preservation mechanism. Those are my theories. What do you think? Um, well, if you want to control the message, you know, you know that, that there are going to be people questioning the event. Do you think those who planned 9-11 forgot to plan a cover-up? <laughs> At least one. Maybe five. Yeah. Maybe ten. Yeah. So build it and they will come. A place for these people to be collected. I call them collection agencies. <laughs> <laughs> That's very clever, yes. And then you give them a pacifier, and it, and it keeps them out of trouble. Right, right. And the easiest way to control groups is to uh, demand consensus, you know, talking points. Right, right. And if somebody veers off from the talking points, they get uh, excommunicated from the group. That's that's a very very lucent cogent explanation. Absolutely, yeah. So if someone's trying to control your thinking, you know they want you in a group, and if you're not in a group, you it's harder to control people. Right, right. Yes. So uh, and here know, you I, come I along know. with this uh, with with your evidence that doesn't fit that narrative, and you are a disruptor. Well, the, the first thing with the evidence, uh, is in being a forensic engineer, you first have to determine what happened. Absolutely, the absolutely. The easiest way to cover something up is to get people to skip that step and just assume what happened and go on and start arguing about how 
it happen before you've determined what it is. Right, right. And, you know, look at the uh, official story. You know, they're down to, to step three or four. You know, you know, who did it and why they did it. They hate us for our freedoms. Right. And we should point out that your work is not focused on who did it. You know, was there a stand-down right. order? Exactly. What was the motivation? You're simply looking at physical evidence uh, based on your background in engineering uh, to explain why those structures failed the way they did. Or, or what was going on, and, and uh, you know, different types of energy could be involved. Let's let's look at them. One is, you know, like what caused the building to come apart? <clears throat> was it thermal energy? Did the bu- buildings get cooked to death? Well, you had uh, fourteen people walk out of stairway B who don't remember having been cooked to death. You know, so that that's out the window. Uh, was it kinetic energy? You know, bombs or Gravity collapse. Um, there's a lot of evidence that discards that, which is, uh, you know, people in stairway B didn't get smashed. They right. didn't get pulverized. They didn't get squished. They right. walked out. Let me ask you on a personal note. What has this meant for you as an academic, uh, uh, publishing this book, Where Did the Towers Go? What is it, what does it cost you in terms of, I don't know, career, um, personally, I, I'm guessing that this 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 must have been a very difficult decision for you to whether to publish or not. Uh, it wasn't difficult because it needed to be done, <clears throat> and I felt like I was in the best position to do it, uh, not having a, a immediate family that would be put at risk. Somebody with an immediate family that would be put at risk would have a much tougher time. Right, right. And how about but, pr- professionally? Uh, oh, it, it, it was, it's a one-way ticket out of a profession. It's, it's, um, but I don't like to play pity parties. Uh, I understand, I understand. Yeah, it's, it's about the evidence, and it's, it's this important. Uh, I, I will say that when I decided I was going to do this, I uh, called my mother and told her, and she said, well, if you do that, you won't have a career. And I said, if I don't, nobody will. And I think that's as as time's gone on, I think uh, people can see that that is where things are going. Right. Stay tuned. More of my conversation with Dr. Judy Wood, the author of Where Did the Towers Go? After these. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to a special edition of The Conspiracy Show as we commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. We're going back to August of 2016 for this conversation with materials engineer Dr. Judy Wood, the author of Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11. A little bit of a primer here for those not familiar with directed free energy technology. What do we mean by that, directed free energy technology? Well, I was explaining about uh, how we can rule out kinetic energy being involved as a destructive mechanism and thermal energy. You know, the buildings weren't cooked to death, nor were they beaten to death, like by gravity collapse or by bombs, you know, blowing things up, moving things and having something hit something else. Uh, a lot of reasons for that. You'd have people squashed instead of walking out. 
um, with, you know, blue sky above them. <clears throat> and also, uh, there'd be a seismic signal. There's a lot of other things with it. But what I'm describing as directed energy, the energy was instructed or directed to do something differently than it normally does. The binding forces of matter are usually attracted to each other, but they were somehow instructed to reverse their side and repel each other. All right. And and let me ask you then, how, how did you begin to piece this together? What was the first indication for you uh, that this might have been a directed free energy uh, weapon of some sort? Well, I'm, I'm, I don't start with the weapon. I don't start with, with the answer and then go backwards. Uh, I start with looking at what happened. And you keep looking and, and let the evidence tell you what happened. Don't tell the evidence what it's supposed to show you. Right. Okay, so let me rephrase. What was the first indication for you, and how quickly did it come, that the official version was incorrect? There was something else happening here. Oh, it came that day. I was in the faculty conference room and looking at the TV set of the building, you know, frothing up into dust, and they're calling it a collapse. And they're like, wait a minute. You, know, you guys aren't buying this, are you? It's, it's, you know, there's something wrong with the story. And uh, folks looked at me like I was crazy. And, and uh, w- when you say this is not a collapse, explain that. What do you mean this is not a collapse? I mean, for well, the, to, the, to the uninitiated, it looked like. like a collapse. Well, imagine what a, a collapse would look like. This piece falls into this piece. This goes concurrent. This goes, you know, pop. Kind of like how an avalanche gets going. You know, it doesn't start one, two, three all at once. One part gets another part going, which gets another part going. Right, right. <clears throat> Instead, we saw the building turning to dust from top to bottom. Right, being pulverized as as the building. Uh, pulverized no? has a specific meaning. It okay. Means, uh, it, it, kinetic energy is involved, a grinding. And this was pieces were flying through the air and turning into dust with with nothing hitting them but air. Hmm. And and how would you? Now, one of the things I've been told about the construction of the of the World Trade Center uh, towers uh, is, um, you know, a lot of a lot of drywall, uh, pretty flimsy construction. I've been told. This is one of the, the, the things that, that's out there that this was not a well designed building, uh, oh, and that there was. It was uh, pretty well designed, but you have to look at again at what happened instead of um, assuming it was a poor construction or assuming uh, airplanes did something to you know instead of making assumptions. It's it's really it takes an awful lot of discipline to just look at what happened. Right. No, but I'm I'm wondering because of the amount of drywall in that building, uh, could that not drywall cause steel to turn into dust in midair? Right. No. Excellent point. But I'm just wondering whether the 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 presence of all that dust in the air in part could be attributed to the fact that so much of the construction was comprised of as I say a gypsum, um, gypsum rock. There was a, a tremendous. There's a about one fifth of the total weight of the building was steel, one f- the okay. steel frame. All right. And you can see, you know, in videos, the pieces coming down and they don't ever hit the ground. They turn to dust before they hit the ground. Pieces and of metal that are turning to dust. Let me just think on that for a moment and let everyone else listen and think on that. Pieces of metal, as they're descending, are turning to dust. Yes. They look like they're um, like an Alka-Seltzer tablet, just frothing up into dust. Remarkable. Okay. 
So it, people don't know what would cause that, so they, they tend to uh, ignore that piece of evidence. But instead of needing to know, that's what's important about just putting off any kind of um, assumptions. Right. And just going with what the evidence shows. And not feeling the need to play Name That Weapon. Name That Weapon. Okay. All right. I'm with you. Yeah, play Spin the Dial Name That Weapon. Right. The name of the weapon is not important. Actually, it, it's counterproductive because, you know, people start getting um, trendy terms and they name drop trendy terms, terms and pretty soon they don't even know what they're what the, the gizmo does. Right, and pretty, pretty soon people are imagining some sort of a laser beam with, you know, Dr. Evil uh, next to it, and, right. and then you lose the room. I do have uh, my name for it, but, you know, I hesitate at mentioning it because uh, people start, you might start using that and make initials for it or something, but it's, it's just what the evidence shows. Right, okay. Magnetic electrogravitic nuclear reactions. More with Dr. Judy Wood after these. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Now, back to my 2016 conversation with materials engineer Dr. Judy Wood, the author of Where Did the Towers Go? So what did you call this weapon again? Magnetic electrogravitic nuclear reactions. Electrogravitic nuclear reactions, okay. In other words, it involves magnetism, electricity, and uh, gravity. All right, and and has has this technology been around a while? Uh, yes, but not uh, advertised in, in the Sears catalog or anything. <laughs> no, no doubt. Okay. And and uh, what I like to stress, and what's also in my book, I show parallel evidence. Now, there's evidence of something we do know that produces the same results. Uh, and one example is tornadoes. Ah, interesting. Okay. Tell me more. Uh, you know, weird things happen with tornadoes, like um, anti-gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it it may follow an electrical signal. If it's a buried cable, sometimes it follows that. <clears throat> There's and it also uh, dustifies things uh, or it dismembers things. Um, one um, video I saw, I think it was like three years ago, in the Dallas Fort Worth area, uh, that there's uh, a whole bunch of these tornadoes in the area, and they showed some flying trucks. Right, right. You remember that? Absolutely, and, I've seen the, and I remember the movie, uh, you know, the, uh, about those storm chasers. I can't remember the name of it, but... Uh... Right, but isn't that strange? It was the, uh, the trailer part of the trucks. The trailer part of the truck, right. Okay. You didn't see dumpsters flying around. Okay, so where are you going with that, Dr. Wood? What is uh, that mean? It, Just looking at, you know, themes here, but wasn't it interesting that you had that, like, where does the wind come from if you're going to say wind picked it up? Where does you the start, wind come from? Yeah, if this if this trailer is sitting on the ground, what causes it, you know, it's a lot of weight. What causes it to suddenly fly upward? Right. How much wind would you need to shoot up from the ground? You know, that doesn't, you know, that... that um, 
doesn't work as an explanation. First thing you do realize is an anti-gravity aspect of it. They also showed a house that had the roof removed. Uh, big screen television was intact. There was a, a bookcase with a stack of printer paper on it, and that wasn't just lodged at all. The paper wasn't fluffed up or anything. But the roof was gone. Right, right. Are you going to tell me the wind blew the roof off? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I see what you're saying. I mean, this is not just indiscriminate. This is, there's a, a degree of precision here. Right. And that's just a natural occurrence. Now, mm-hmm. do you think uh, somebody hasn't weaponized that? It would stand to reason. Absolutely. It would stand to reason. Um, there's other evidence that, that that you point, and there's some interesting photographs, and these are available online as well, I believe, uh, and that is um, vehicles, for example, that were... Toasted cars. What did you call them? Toasted cars. Toasted As cars. In, they're toast. They're history. Something happened to them, and you can't fix them. you got to get another one. Right. In, 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 and uh, in, some, in some cases, uh, I believe there was a taxi cab and maybe a police cruiser. I can't remember if there was a police cruiser, but there was certainly a taxi cab. And it's... Right. Is it's it over on, the Roosevelt, over on the Roosevelt Expressway, was it? Um, the FDR drive. FDR drive. I don't know how it got there. Let me be, say this over and over again, because the, my detractors like to say, oh, she claims that, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how that got there, but the damage to it is mighty strange. Uh, that the uh, polycarbonate lights are not melted, but the inside of the car is totally toasted. So if you have some rip-roaring fire going on inside the car, isn't it going to make those lights on top like they're on a hot grill? Right, right. And there are a number of vehicles around the World Trade Center tower in a similar, suffering like similar over damage. Over 1,400. 1,400 vehicles? Yep. And in some cases... Uh, the vehicle, I mean, it doesn't show any external distress. I mean, it's not like it's scorched on the outside. Right, it's just weird things like that particular police car. Uh, the front door is completely toasted, and the back door is pristine. Interesting. Now, again, using the tornado analogy, would that explain how those cars ended up on their roof? Well, in their, um, whatever's happening is a you know, particular zone. That's when I start realizing there's some involvement of some some field effects. Field effects, okay. Uh, like you know where I, something would happen in one place and not another. Like there's also there's a spot in that car that um, or one of the cars next to it where there's a circular spot where it's pristine and around that is totally toasted. And fire doesn't work that way. You don't have something's completely scorched and something's pristine one nanometer away. You know, fire works as, you know, hot, cold, and shades of gray in between. Right, right. And this is just a pristine delineation, which is an interference uh, type of effect. Right. Uh, but the, the vast number of these cars is just incredible. They appeared to go into spontaneous combustion. Let me stress, appeared to go into spontaneous combustion. Uh, that, you know, it, it looked like fire, but if you have plastic that isn't melted and paper that isn't burning, what is it? You know, is it plasma or, or what? Right. And this, this technology uh, that was involved, does it leave some sort of a marker? Uh, for example, those who, who swear up and down that it was controlled demolition and they talk about nanothermite and they look for, you know, traces of it in the, in the dust and so forth. Uh, well, but does this technology leave a marker? Uh, well, the evidence is the marker. Now, as for controlled demolition, the, the buildings were demolished in a controlled fashion. 
but it was, you know, thermite is not, you know, what did thermite do to the buildings? Yeah, the, the folks who present that don't ever make that connection. Does thermite cause things to turn into dust in midair? It does not, as far as we know. <laughs> and it's also not used to control demolitions because it cannot be controlled. Thermite is a you know 19th century uh, welding material. It works through heat transfer, and heat transfer takes time. Right. Well, that's when they stick the the word the the, uh, the prefix nano on there. I guess to sort of new and improved. Super new and improved. Yes. Super Although super mini micro nanothermite. Exactly. Uh, nanothermite because it works. Thermite works through thermal conductivity. Nanothermite would be faster, so you have even less time for the thermal conductivity. And I mentioned yeah. trying to wire 110 right. floors, and, and you said if you. Ever- drive along and you come to a, a blasting zone, it says blasting zone, turn off cell phones and two-way radios. I hadn't, I haven't experienced that, but tell me more about that. Well, uh, it, they could accidentally, the frequency, accidentally trip a wire that's, that's rigged for demolition. Oh, is that right? Like if they're going to blow up a side of a mountain to build a road through. Right. Uh, they wire it up, but, but if you're, while you're driving through the area, it says turn off cell phones and two-way radios. So you don't accidentally trip it. And you can imagine how many people would be wandering around with cell phones on Wall Street. So I can't think of a city except maybe Tokyo that has a higher density of those. That, that makes sense. Right. So it's, that could have caused it to go off prematurely. So therefore, another reason to probably rule out, uh, you know, wiring that still, building. We're, you know, getting away from uh, what happened. And there's a particular piece of evidence that was absent on 9-11 that would be required if it was a thermite or a high heat type deal. And do you know what that is? No, tell me. Let me see if I can play this uh, clip. Little Manfred Mann here on the program. Okay, blinded by the light, a flash. Yeah. Wasn't anybody blinded by the light? Nobody saw some huge bright... You know, like uh, a giant Fourth of July sparkler. That's true. That's true. No reports of that whatsoever. So and there was unburned paper flat, fluttering all over the city. Indeed, there was hauntingly so. Um, now, back to the um, you mentioned the field effects, and we talked about the cars, the overturned cars, and some cars were sort of scorched, and others were were not. But so, talk to me about some of the other field effects. Talk to me, for example, about weather anomalies. Anomalies. Well, there's uh, windows are an interesting thing. There were uh, rounded holes through window glass without any other breaks in the windows. Rounded holes. Rounded holes. And how, how do you get a glass cutter to even do that? Exactly. Now, how would how would the directed free energy technology cause uh, something like that? Let, let me uh, back up. Whatever technology was used that day. Uh, was a technology that was demonstrated to do what was done, you know, without need to name it at all. But it turns out if you look at what it did, it can be used for good rather than evil. In other words, it can be used to uh, produce free energy. In the same way that on uh, uh, August 6, 1945, uh, that was evidence of nuclear power plants. No, nuclear power plants did not destroy Hiroshima. But what happened at Hiroshima was evidence 
that that same kind of uh, technology could be used in a good way for nuclear power plants. Right, right. And that's what I mean by directed free energy technology. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a it's a it's a kind of an umbrella term, isn't it? Right, right. The uh, the technology that was used on nine eleven, and the evidence presented is evidence that free energy technology exists. Coming up, hour two of our twentieth anniversary nine eleven special, and a conversation with the late Phil Marshall, a Boeing seven sixty seven captain and author of the Big Bamboozle nine eleven and the War on Terror. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. We went to a high point in our building, which is on the 25th floor, and you had a clear view of the uh, both World Trade Centers, and the one that was uh, smoking hard, and uh, there was another plane that was flying low, and we just looked at it, and before you know it, just kamikaze boom right into the other tower and mass explosion windows flying it was horrible we heard a big bang and then we saw smoke coming out and everybody started running out and we saw the plane on the other side of the building and there was smoke everywhere and people are jumping out the windows over there they're jumping out the windows i guess because they're trying to save themselves i don't know Today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the Vice President, to the Governor of New York, to the Director of the FBI, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government uh, go to help the victims and their families and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Welcome back to a special edition of The Conspiracy Show as we commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I met the late Phil Marshall back in 2012 on the Santa Monica Pier while I was shooting an episode of my television show. Phil was a former Boeing 767 captain and former special activities contract pilot. He was also the author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror, in which he revealed the connection between the 9-11 hijackers and the Royal House of Saud. So we go back to the summer of 2012 for this conversation. Philip, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, good evening, Richard. How are you? Terrific, thank you. And it was a delight meeting you in Santa Monica a couple of weeks back and a real eye-opener. Yes. Let me uh, begin uh, by saying this. I um, I finished the book, and I uh, again, I think it's important that uh, everyone within earshot uh, get a copy. Not that, uh, you know, we're, not that I, I normally promote books to this extent, but I think you've really nailed this one. Uh, like a lot of people, I got distracted with the whole controlled demolition uh, aspect of this unsolved crime. And now, after reading your book, Philip, I am convinced that that is a huge distraction, uh, maybe by design, I'm not sure. But um, 
a lot of the information, uh, the, uh, the, I mean, this is the, 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 the world's biggest unsolved crime, and a lot of the information that solves it is contained in a report that was uh, issued by the Congressional Joint Inquiry, something that most people have never heard of, fewer have even read. Tell me about the Congressional Joint Inquiry. When, did, when was it formed, and, and, and who were its um, leaders? Yeah, it was uh it was right after the attacks actually uh in 2002 the inquiry was formed over the objections of the Bush White House and um Senator Bob Graham who was the head of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence uh for the Senate was the head of that inquiry and um you know they did a 10 month investigation into it they were able to find FBI documents, you know, that showed that the FBI agents had, had been following the 9-11 hijackers and that they had been in contact and in, in close, uh, uh, continuous contact with uh, Saudi Arabian uh, intelligence agents who were acting as their, uh, as their guides through America. Uh, you know, they, they landed in... Um, I mean, the inquiry report is is fascinating. Uh, it shows that the hijacker, two of the hijackers, had landed in Los Angeles back in uh, January on January fifteenth, to be precise, of uh, two thousand, and were soon met by Saudi agents who were connected to my area of expertise, which is the training of the of the hijackers on the on the Boeing airplanes. Uh, the the uh, uh, Bob Phil uh, or Bob Graham rather, uh, yeah. who led the inquiry, he was joined by a couple of top-notch congressional investigators. Tell me about them. Yeah, there was uh, one. Eleanor Hill was a, uh, a a veteran congressional investigator, and another guy named Jake Jacobson, who uh, who was also a F- former FBI uh, agent, and he had turned um, into an investigator. He he investigated it for. For the Congress, also, and as you as you point out, you have two FBI's in this in this scenario. You have the field agents who are trying desperately to avert or avoid uh, catastrophe, and then you have this other FBI with asterisks beside it. Explain the difference between the field agents and this other FBI uh, FBI headquarters. I believe you referred to them as. Yeah, well, the, the FBI field agents were following the hijackers. They had, um, they were looking for them, and then uh, headquarters, basically, um, which was you know being run out of the George Bush Center for Intelligence. Um, you know, every time they sent up, you know, hey, we 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 found these guys out training. You know, later on in in the investigation. Um, the hijackers were out in the desert in Arizona uh, training to fly Boeing airplanes. And the FBI field agents actually sent up a message to headquarters, hey, we found these guys out here. We believe they're up to no good. We believe they're doing some sort of a terrorist operation. And, um, you know, they sent the warnings up to Washington, and when they got there, they, they literally disappeared. Now, before we get into uh, a lot of the substance here, which, again, uh, draws, connects the dots, really, between the, the royal house of Saud, 
members of the royal family uh, of Saudi Arabia and the 9-11 terrorist, uh, terrorists uh, and this national security state that you're beginning to describe. Um, let me ask you why we haven't heard about the Congressional Joint Inquiry. If it was, um, uh, you know, struck in, in 2002 and you had uh, Senator Bob Graham leading this and investigators, uh, this is before the 9-11 Commission. Why didn't we hear about this? Why didn't the mainstream media report about this inquiry? Yeah, well, it was Dick Cheney's work. Uh, Dick Cheney actually called Bob Graham on the phone and told him to basically put a lid on it and, um, you know, that if he tried to reveal any of the stuff that they ended up redacting in that report, which was 28 pages worth, that they would face charges of leaking classified information. So they, they threatened him with jail if he was to release any of this information to the, to the media or to the public. And then Bob Graham would later, a couple of years later, write his own book. Uh, I believe it was entitled Security Matters. Did he divulge this information in that book? Yes, he, he, he went into great detail, you know, and, and he made a, a bunch of great points, you know, one, one being that, you know, hey, if it would be so difficult, you know, say you and I, Richard, decided we're going to go to Russia and do some sort of a, uh, a, you know, aerial assault like this in a, in a big operation, you know, how, how difficult would it really be, you know, for, for them to detect us in their country trying to pull off some sort of an attack like this. But as we look at this, there were, you know, there were at least 20 people involved in the, in the direct conspiracy. And, um, you know, the people behind the, the scenes who were training these uh, hijackers to become pilots, you know, to fly a mission that lasted about 30 minutes long, you know, you know, it, it really gets, it, it really is almost impossible to think that, you know, that these guys could have been in the country training, you know, for this big mission. You know, we went, we know where they went at the beginning. They went to Florida for their initial, you know, basic training in small airplanes. And then later on, you know, in 2001, they all moved to the, they all moved to the desert and started flying these, you know, uh, learning how to fly these Boeing, uh, airplanes that they were, that was, that was used in the attacks. Uh, let me remind listeners, Philip Marshall, a veteran airline captain, is with us and uh, uh, has led a comprehensive 10-year study into the tactical plan used by the 9-11 hijackers and is the leading aviation expert on the September 11th attack. Uh, let me just set the table here uh, for those just joining us, Philip. So uh, you believe that uh, and, and the congressional uh, joint inquiry uh, tends to suggest that this was an inside job. It was carried out. In part by the the uh, the hijackers, but there was obviously participation within the U.S. administration. Yes, someone you know the the, the entire mission was was carried out by the Saudi Arabian intelligence uh, agency, and you know the nine eleven um, joint inquiry said that you know they were Saudi spies that had seemingly unlimited funds from Saudi Arabia. They knew where they were getting the money from. They, they tracked down the bank accounts, and they were able to find, you know, that they had shared bank accounts with some of the top people in the Saudi monarchy, including uh, this Prince Bandar bin Sultan was, um, 
You know, he I, I believe that he was the initial mastermind, and then they later on farmed out, you know, the actual attack and the execution to the former Saudi intelligence chief, uh, a guy named uh, Prince uh, Turkey Al-Fazl, who they found, you know, he left Las Vegas, you know, in the same desert, you know, just a few days after the attacks with a 100 men, you know. So they had a pretty big logistical and tactical team on the ground operating in the U.S., and I believe that, you know, they could not have been operating here without some sort of protection from our intelligence community. Uh, you, you, you point out that uh, Bandar al-Sultan Sultan is, is um, or at least you, you, you were describing this to me when we were in Santa Monica together, that, uh, that he is so close uh, to the Bush family that he's known as Bandar Bush. Yes, and, you know, before 9-11, I was actually studying the Iran-Contra uh, affair that I was involved in back in the 80s, and his name came up as a financier in the illegal arming of the Nicaraguan Contras. You know, so the Bush, uh, the Bush Cheney, uh, Saudi connection goes way back. It goes back at least 30 years to when, you know, these guys have worked together on several covert missions together. Now, Bandar was at the time the ambassador to Washington, was he not? That is correct. And, you know, we found, I mean, he met Donald Rumsfeld in, I have a picture of him on our Facebook page. Uh, our Facebook page is called The Big Bamboozle, and uh, it's a good place to go. That's where we put we post a lot of our uh, videos and a lot of the media coverage that we believe is, is nonsense, and then we will rebut the, you know, the postings that the media makes. But, um, you know, Bandar is, you know, he, he is really... <laughs> He goes back along. He goes along back a long way with the, with the Bush uh, family. The missing link here to all the, you know, the, these theories uh, with the Saudis is is what I was investigating, and and that is basically the nuts and bolts of 9/11. You know how they actually executed the attack, how they actually trained the hijackers, how they actually flew the mission. You know, um, how, how they prepared for it, how they, um, you know, how they started, you know, years in advance. This thing, you know, there's, there's another group called the Project for a New American Century. I bet you've heard of that. Oh, yes. And, um, they, you know, they basically wrote the blueprint for the post 9-11 world, which was to invade the Middle East and to pretty much clamp down on, you know, American society. Um, you know, you can look at this as the the central intelligence has has basically taken over the United States government. They've changed their name to the United States Intelligence Community. They're based at the George Bush Center of Intelligence in Langley, Virginia, and they now control 16 of our most powerful agencies in Washington. And um, you know, those include the Department of Homeland Security, you know, DHS, the TSA, Transportation Security Agency, the CIA, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, and here's the big one, the United States Treasury, where over $15 trillion have disappeared from our Treasury since 
the 9-11 attack. So this is a coup d'etat. Uh, it's the second coup d'etat. First, they took the executive branch over in 63 in Daly Plaza. And then, I guess, the remaining important uh, departments uh, with 9-11. Phil Marshall is with us, the author of The Big Bamboozle. Uh, Prince Bandar, member of the Saudi royal family, was the ambassador to Washington, D.C. during 9-11. His wife, did she not write checks to the, the terrorists? Yeah, well, they, they had a joint bank account at the Riggs Bank in Washington that was in business, I think, since 18, 1830 or so, you know, way back before the, you know, before the Civil War even, you know, and, uh, this was a big Washington powerful bank and, you know, she had an account there and so did Bandar himself. And then the hijackers, the people who were, uh, supporting the hijackers, were harboring the hijackers on the West Coast, also had a bank account at that same bank, and there was transfers that the Congressional Joint Inquiry found that went from her bank account directly to the people who were aiding the hijackers. So, I mean, this is not conspiracy theory, folks. This is the These are the findings of the Congressional Joint Inquiry, which was largely ignored, muzzled, uh, by, uh, Dick Cheney. Even, uh, now did Cheney not sick the FBI to investigate the, uh, the members of the inquiry? Yeah, according to Graham's book, uh, you know, he wrote a book called Intelligence Matters. And, um, you know, he described how, you know, they were threatening, you know, the, the investigators, the congressional staff and everything with lie detector tests, with all kinds of, you know, intrusive, uh, you know, interrogations and just threaten them and they muzzled them into silence. And that's exactly what uh, Senator Graham said. They were muzzled into silence by Dick Cheney. Now, the the Saudi uh, agent that that met uh, at least two of the hijackers, I believe, in, in San Diego. Uh, tell me about this individual. Yeah, well, this guy was named Omar Al-Bayoumi, and he was a... Um, he was a Saudi national living in the United States, living living in San Diego, and on uh, just a couple of days after the hijackers had landed in in Los Angeles, he drove up to the Saudi embassy and met behind closed doors at the Saudi embassy and left that meeting and and went directly to a, a small restaurant in Los Angeles where the hijackers were waiting, and he. Now, the thing that I found really interesting about him was he was the guy that I was looking for because when I put the, uh, I began my research by putting together the attack. I recreated the attack. I recreated the times that they departed, how they flew the mission, what kind of air, you know, aviation uh, skills were needed to fly this mission. And I determined that they had definitely had contact with Boeing experts. And this guy, Omar Bayoumi, was working for a company called Dalla Avco out of on the West Coast. But they were based in Saudi Arabia, and they had Boeing aircraft that they had underneath their, uh, under their certificate. So this was my aviation expert that I was looking for. And he, was, he wasn't an aviation expert, but he led them to the company that had training materials, had simulators, had all the you know, all the things that you would need to, you know, train the hijackers. And I'm sure you had access to uh, Arabic-speaking flight instructors for the Boeing aircraft. 
Omar Al Bayoumi. This is he's he was an is an employee of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority. Right. And he met these hijackers. Now, this again is co- according to the Congressional Joint Inquiry. Yes. He was someone that the FBI were very interested in speaking to. Yes. What happened when the inquiry tried to speak to this individual? Well, they actually served him a subpoena, or, or they they wrote up a subpoena and. Um, the FBI headquarters and the, the Bush White House refused to serve him the subpoena. Why? They didn't give a reason. They just said... <laughs> you cannot interview this individual. Yeah. This so. is someone who had contact with at least two, perhaps three hijackers prior to the 9-11 attacks, had repeated meetings with them, and the inquiry was told by the FBI, by Dick Cheney, don't you dare speak to this individual. That's correct. That's correct. And, and, and the, the most interesting one is is the, uh, the 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 eventual pilot hijacker for American seventy seven, uh, a guy named Hanny Hanjour. This is the one that hit the Pentagon. This is the one that yeah. flew into the Pentagon. That's the one that hit the Pentagon exactly. And he flew into town um, into San Diego, um, you know, the day after Bush was declared president by the Supreme Court. And soon after, within the next week, all three of them left the San Diego area, and that's when they went out into the deserts in Arizona and began to train for the mission. Now, we need to spend some time uh, discussing how this was pulled off, because as you point out in The Big Bamboozle, everything we knew about Al-Qaeda, if there is an Al-Qaeda, up until this point, up till this point, was all about car bombs and and uh you know shoe bombs and 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 pretty awkward clumsy attempts to bring down airliners now all of a sudden we're led to believe that they're capable of something far more complex i mean exponentially more complex bringing down uh, or bringing the the most sophisticated uh, military uh and defense mechanism ever known to man to its knees it just doesn't it doesn't add up Oh, it, it's it's absolutely impossible to suggest that these guys, the ones that, and and the thing is, is that there's no evidence in, when you when you read over the real evidence in this case, the facts are, all point to the Saudi operation, and to suggest that some guy that's living in a cave without electricity was the guy that defeated all U.S. national security is is it's preposterous. More of my conversation with airline captain and author, the late Phil Marshall, right after these. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. President Bush continuing his trek through the Middle East. He lands in Saudi Arabia this morning, where the government there declared a national holiday in his honor. His warm welcome comes on the coattails of a $20 billion arms deal that the U.S. has pledged for Saudi Arabia. The deal gives Saudi Arabia the right to buy precision-guided missiles from the U.S. 
Welcome back. Let me crib here quickly from the big bamboozle. From the moment the hijackers arrived on U.S. soil, it is well documented that Saudi intelligence agents and employees of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority provided housing, obtained driver's licenses, and harbored them. After lying low as a sleeper cell throughout the year 2000, they would be led to intensive flight training in the Arizona desert in December of 2000, which leads to the first plausible explanation of the incredible flying performance demonstrated on 9-11. After submitting an 800-page report to the American public, moderate U.S. Senator Bob Graham of Florida, the co-chairman of the inquiry, said, quote, There was a direct line between the terrorists and the government of Saudi Arabia. The Saudi government had provided logistical and financial support to at least two of the 9-11 hijackers while they lived in Southern California. Graham chronicled that FBI headquarters had responded aggressively to Cheney's request that the FBI investigate the inquiry staff during the investigation, interviewing dozens of members of Congress and their aides. The Bureau suggested it wanted to use polygraphs on some of the lawmakers with the threat of prosecution and jail, of being traitors in a time of war. To, to Graham, the entire experience seemed surreal. So, the nine, uh, the, uh, the inquiry connects the dots to uh, Saudi intelligence, and then goes on to document how, or at least uh, Bob Graham did in his book, how Dick Cheney and the FBI wanted to cover this up. To me, that's pretty much case closed. You don't have to believe in controlled demolition to know that certain elements within the U.S. government working with Saudi intelligence pulled 9-11 off. Uh, Philip Marshall, uh, back to this airfield. Is there a connection between this airfield and Blackwater? Oh, yes. Um, you know, th- there was a author named Jeremy Scahill who wrote the book Blackwater, and he really chronicled the connections between the uh, the number three man, supposedly, at, at, at CIA, um, a guy named Buzzy Krongard. Um, he was he was the man who was doling out contracts, you know, no bid contracts to to Blackwater on behalf of of us, the taxpayers, basically. And uh, he was also the head of of the same investment firm, you know. Uh, he was formerly the head of the 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 same investment firm who placed put option trades, stock trades on two airlines. Only two airlines were were traded. In, in, in big portions in the week prior to 9-11. And it was by his firm and the, the only two airlines that they used were American and United Airlines. They, 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 um, they, they traded stock. They put, put options, you know, you know, betting that, that the, the stock price for United and American would go down. They did not place any other stock options on any other airlines. And that was done through the Chicago Stock Exchange. But how do we know it was Buzzy Krongard? Uh We don't know that it was from him, but we know that it was from the firm that he once founded. So there is a connection there. Alex Brown Bank, was that it? Uh, exactly, Alex mm-hmm. Brown. All right, let's grab some calls. Uh, our good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal, checks in. I agree. You know, the planes are a distraction. I mean, look at Building 7, right? I mean, what are they going to say there? An invisible plane hit the building? But <laughs> you see the whole situation. But, you know, the real question is, what about the dancing Israelis? I don't think there was just any one. But this is too big for any. If anybody knows anything about the intelligence agencies, this is too big an operation for just one. I'm sure the Saudis were involved, but there were a lot well, of... We are 
focusing involved, on the and um, uh, so far the banned book on the subject. It's also as important as English literature, media scientist Rich. We should remember um, Andreas von Bülow's book was banned, and he talked about the CIA and 9/11. So there were lots of agencies involved, and uh, there were dancing Israelis too. And I wonder about what you think about the about the uh, or the the author of this book. It sounds like an interesting book. I haven't read it, but what does he think about the other uh, reports and uh, what brought down Building 7? I'd be interested in what he found. Well, the Building 7 thing is, is suspicious to me. I'm, I, you know, I'm not a building expert. My, my area of expertise is the airplanes and how they got to where they were on 9-11. You know, I'm not an expert on how buildings come down. But um, as far as the dancing Israelis, I think we need to look at that project for a new American century uh, document real close again, the Rebuilding America's Defenses. A lot of those guys, Paul Wolfowitz was in there, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, these were all Cheney people, and they're all, a lot of them are connected to the APAC, which is the American-Israeli Public Action Committee is what they call themselves, but they're really just a pack. As you point, a lot, a lot of special interest groups, uh, individuals. We need to point out we're talking about individuals here. We don't want to point fingers at uh, uh, at um, uh, uh, countries or, or nationalities. Um, now, as for, as for Building Seven, I mean, when I look at that, that could have been controlled demolition. Like I said, that's way out of my area of expertise. My area is the airplanes and how right. they got to where they got. All right, let's uh, say hello to Michael in the beaches. Michael, welcome. Yes, uh, good evening, Richard and uh, Phil Marshall. I seem to remember years ago uh, hearing some hijacker uh, being quoted as saying that he didn't want to know how to, you know, start the plane or take off, and he didn't want to know how to land the plane. He just simply wanted to know how to fly the plane. And if that is true, that he allegedly said this, where would he have gotten the training and... Was he one of the hijackers that died as well? Yeah. Now that was in, that was in the uh, the basic training phases when these guys were learning how to fly smaller airplanes and they they were getting introduction courses in a Boeing simulator down in uh, Opelika, Florida. I believe that's where this incident happened. The guy went in there. They're trying to prepare themselves for the training that was coming up on the airplanes, I believe. So that when he went into that simulator, he said, well, I don't really need to know how to take off. I just need to know how to fly around. Michael, thank you for the call. You mentioned earlier uh, uh, Prince Turkey El Faisal, another member of the royal family. Uh, again, his connection to the 9-11 uh, hijackers was what? Well, he was he was in the desert, and they they departed Las Vegas. There wasn't anything written up on him until they they started looking into these flights that left uh, Las Vegas on September nineteenth, twentieth, and I think twenty second, um, right after the attack. And there were three chartered airliners that left Las Vegas back going back to, to the kingdom, and he was on one of them. And there was a hundred men with him so he had been in the desert at the same time that the hijackers had been in the desert and and the people who were harboring them now it's interesting because some of the the survivors or the families of uh, those killed in the 9-11 attacks they launched a, a class action suit against prince turkey al, al faisal did they not that's correct 
And 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 what happened with that suit? That suit was thrown out because the the federal judge ruled that you know we we can't sue a, a company a, a country who is operating on U.S. soil, <laughs> even though that that is illegal for a, for a foreign intelligence agency to be operating on U.S. soil. And and who was the lawyer for Turkey Al Faisal? Um, well, it came out of. Uh, James Baker's law firm down there, you know, James Baker and, and, and the Bush family are real tight. He was uh, chief of staff for, for, for George 41. Exactly. And James Baker and George 41, during the Reagan years, you have concluded, were essentially responsible for the, uh, the Iran-Contra. Exactly, yes. Do you think, then, that James Baker and George 41 were also involved along with Dick Cheney uh, with the Saudi uh, the Saudi uh, Civil Aviation Authority and, and uh, uh, members of the, the, the Saudi royal family in orchestrating 9/11. Yeah, I mean, I believe that they this is a long term plan to take over our government, and I I wrote about that in my first book uh, that was titled Lakefront Airport. It's not available for sale right now, but it will be soon. Um, but yes, I, I started to make the, connect the dots between James Baker, the Bush family, the Saudi family, and, um, you know, all this before 9-11 even, even started. All right, stay right where you are. More of my conversation with the late Philip Marshall, the author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror, right after these. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Once again, we're dialing it back to 2012 for my conversation with the late Phil Marshall, airline pilot and the author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror, which is a comprehensive 10-year study into the murders of his fellow pilots on 9-11, He explains how hijackers, novice pilots at the controls of massive guided missiles, were able to beat United States Air Force fighters to iconic targets with advanced maneuvering, daring speed, and a kamikaze finish. And he explains the role of Saudi Arabian intelligence agents in 9-11. So would you then conclude that what we witnessed on 9-11 was a a coup d'etat? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at what, what has happened to our government since then, um, you know, and, and the big thing is that, you know, our justice system has been railroaded. Um, you know, they, they, they blame that at, at the same time they were training these Saudis, the back channels and CIA were floating this rumor about some, some dark ghost that nobody had ever seen, you know, some, some spooky guy named, you know, Osama bin Laden, you know, you know, boo, and, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, so, so they were spreading the, through the back channels that this guy was getting ready to attack. So on, when, when the attack came down, everyone in CIA and everyone in, in the intelligence community said, oh yeah, we know who's, who's gonna do, who, who did this, you know, it's, it's this guy Osama bin Laden. And then, but when you look into it, there is no, no, not one shred of evidence of any involvement in the planning or the execution of the attack. Now, Prince Bandar, it's, it was reported on July 26th, 
again, the former Saudi ambassador to Washington, that he was assassinated. Uh, what do we know about Prince Bandar's whereabouts? Is he, in fact, dead, or do we know? Well, it's been known for... It, 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 there's been rumored for quite some time that he's he's got major drug and alcohol problems um, and that he's been in some kind of an asylum or some kind of rehab facility for years. It's well documented that he has drug and alcohol issues. And for him, he, you know, he, he's been coming and going in the media, and I think it's probably just another propaganda ploy. It might be his, his plan to escape, just say that, oh, I'm dead, and disguise himself and go live on, on an island somewhere for the rest of his life. I don't know. Phil, when it comes to 9-11, uh, skeptics uh, who suggest there's no way it would have been uh, an inside job, it's even you know odious and, and uh, disgusting to suggest such a thing, and they say, so where are the whistleblowers? Well, we've got Senator Bob Graham sort of blowing the whistle, but where are these FBI field agents who tried to tell they're higher ups that this was going on and they were repeatedly ignored. Why aren't they speaking out? Why aren't they more vocal? You know, that's a good question. In a federal trial, you know, which I have always pushed for, you know, bring this Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to trial. Bring these guys up on on a witness stand and let them do it. But, you know, this is what I call a beer bottle cap conspiracy. You know, you've got all these people down in the middle of the of the bottle that are doing the grunt work, the real Americans, the real people who are who are honest but it right at the top they put the director of the fbi in there and he holds down all that information so it'd be very interesting to get these guys on the stand and and, and hear what they have to really say uh philip job well done with the big bamboozle how can folks get a copy of this book it's very important that they do uh, the book is available on amazon we have it on kindle it's also all throughout europe and um yeah, the UK, we have it on uh, Amazon UK and Amazon Europe, um, so it's available. It's easy to pick up on Amazon. All right, terrific job, and thanks for joining me, Phil. Thank you, uh, Richard, and thank you for uh, keeping this subject alive. It's the least I can do. All right, my man, thank right. you. Bye-bye. The late Philip Marshall, Postscript. Phil Marshall died a few months after this interview in February of 2013 during an alleged murder-suicide in his home in California. Marshall supposedly shot and killed his two teenage children while they slept before turning the gun on himself. However, Wayne Madsen, a former National Security Agency officer, spent a week at the scene investigating and concluded that Phil Marshall and his children were the victims of a black ops assassination not only for what Marshall revealed in The Big Bamboozle, but also for what he might have revealed in the future. Shortly after learning about this horrible tragedy, I went to my email to search for my last correspondence with Phil. We had emailed back and forth about a half dozen times between the radio interview and his death. I was curious to know when exactly was the last time we messaged one another and what did we talk about. I searched my Gmail account and the entire email thread with Phil was gone. Now, it's important for me to point out that I never delete emails, except for spam. I never delete emails. This is my incredibly inefficient method of storing contact information. Again, all of my emails with Phil Marshall were gone. I don't know how, I don't know why, and I don't know who may have been responsible. Coming up on our special 20th anniversary of 9-11, a snippet 
from a fairly recent conversation I had with U.S. Federal Agent Timothy McNiven. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. For this next interview, we go back to October 2019. Timothy McNiven claims to work for the U.S. Defense Department as an intelligence officer. In 1976, he claims he took part in a U.S. military study to improve U.S. air travel security. The scenario for the study included a hijacked airliner which would be deliberately crashed into a 100-story building in the United States. Timothy McNiven, welcome. Please explain a little bit more about who you are. My title is United States Defense Department Intelligence Investigative Office Supervisor to the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And what I do is I'm the supervisor for the intelligence office assigned to the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Are you now retired? No, I in 97, I had a massive heart attack and I went on a medical leave. Then in 2001, when the September 11 hijackings happened, that activated my callback orders. So I've been active duty since they happened there on September 11. The Department of Defense is illegally withholding my federal resources and I can't find a lawyer to help me get them. Like staff, members, car and driver, you know, office, and all the stuff I had before I had my heart attack and went on medical leave. And presumably they're withholding these resources for the reason that we're about to get into. Right. What were you doing in West Germany in 1975-76? I was a member of Sea Battery 2nd of the 81st Field Artillery, U.S. Army, and I was an enlisted man in uh, the Army at that time. And then one day I got called to the office where Lieutenant Teague explained to me that I would be taking part in a study to improve the U.S. air travel security. And then uh, he told me that the reason they were doing it was because of the uh, hijacking of the Israeli jet at the Olympics, a recent bombing in Frankfurt, and uh, Mr. Bike's attempt to hijack an airliner to crash it into the White House to get Nixon when he was president. That was, I think, what prompted them to, you know, get the studies going to uh, improve uh, the air travel security. Why were you selected to conduct this study on preventing or rather improving airline uh, safety? Well, the Department of Defense uh, takes people from different uh, services. Like they probably took people from the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines also and questioned them, you know, to get uh, really complete information on how to stop hijackings from, you know, multiple people so that, uh, you know, why they chose sea battery, they never said exactly, but they, when they do studies, they, you know, ask a number of different people so they can have a whole bunch of information. 
on different days that I would get called to the office and then they would ask me questions about what kind of airplane would be the best airplane to hijack. And I thought that a airplane that was going to fly over the ocean since they would have, you know, full fuel tanks. But then another person said, well, you know, they have full fuel tanks when they uh, have cross country flights also so uh so you were all together in a room and you were just basically brainstorming is that the idea well i took part they had me in the hallway in front of our office and then the people who were conducting the study were in back of me i was never allowed to see the people from the department of defense they all they had coordinated with lieutenant teague on what questions to ask me and you know and whatever other person he would work with so they had it set up so i would never be able to see them and there only a couple times did they say anything Uh, so on the first day that you took part in this study you were given a scenario tell me about that that what that scenario was which is very key we were told that the scenario for this study would be an airliner was going to be hijacked and then crashed into a 100-story building in America. Then we were to think about how we would do it so that they could create the countermeasures to prevent hijackings from happening in the future. Did they ever name the building the specific target, or was it just left generic as a 100-story building? Well, at first it was a just a generic building. Then after uh, the second week, they came and announced that the generic 100-story building was being changed to the World Trade Center Twin Towers in New York City. And Sergeant Henderson told us in the hallway that when Lieutenant Teague heard this because he's from Long Island, New York, that he said that he was able to do it because it was his orders, but it was weird to be ordered to plan to blow up your own hometown. It it shook him really bad. They also asked you specifically, you mentioned, you know, you thought it would be, given the scenario, you would want to use a transatlantic flight because it was, the, the plane would be full of fuel. Someone else countered, well, so is a continental flight. They're also filled with fuel. But then they asked you specifically what type of plane, and your answer was what? A Boeing airplane, because my two older brothers had worked for Boeing's, and they had told me that Boeing's had the one-lock, one-key security system so that no one would ever get locked out of their airplane for losing the key. There was only one key for the Boeing lock. You're putting yourself in the place of a a hijacker and you're saying, well, wait a minute, the the plane to hijack is a Boeing because if I get a hold of any Boeing key, it's going to work on any Boeing plane. Right. Then, then came the subject of weapons. If, if the hijackers are going to overpower the crew or if they're going to you know, commandeer the, 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 the plane, you had to think about, well, what type of weapons would the, the hijackers use? And you came up with? A box knife to use as a weapon because when I worked at this uh, 
company as a machine shop in California. This one guy, he uh, punched his hand in the press and it cut an artery. And like, you know, I had heard that when you cut an artery, the blood squirts out. And, you know, I had never seen it. So when it happened, I'm standing there in total shock, just watching this blood squirt out of his hand. And one of the other employees had to yell at me to go get the manager because he saw that I was completely spellbound by this blood squirting out. So I said, well, you know, since I shot me so badly that the people on the airplane, if they had uh, blood squirted out on them, they would probably be, you know, terrorized kind of like I was, stand there in shock. So that's why I said on the uh, box knife. And, but when they asked how to get it on board, Sergeant Middleton said he had a, a, a relative that worked at a airport. And he said that because of all the drug smuggling on the airlines, that the people would come in and out of uh, the luggage area. They'd go on the planes and stash, you know, drugs on the planes and the people that worked there didn't pay any attention to them because they knew if they uh, bothered these drug dealers that were putting their drugs on the planes that, you know, they'd get a visit at home. So he said it'd be an easy way just to have someone, you know, carried on through the luggage area before the flight took off because they didn't keep people out of the area. You had initially suggested plastic box cutters to avoid the metal detectors, but your colleague suggested that wasn't necessary. They could be placed on the plane in advance. Yes. So you're suggesting then, under your scenario, the best way to commandeer the plane, to get everybody's attention, to instill fear, uh, and then control the, the passengers on board those doomed aircraft was to take those box cutters and sever the arteries, uh, the jugular veins of several people uh, in, in one of the seats. And uh, with the, the blood squirting out, it's horrible to imagine, but that would, that would cause so much fear and everyone would take notice immediately that that's how they would. Yeah. They, okay. Now, I've never heard, I mean, are there reports that on 9-11 that the jugular veins were cut and that that's what happened? Well, that's what they said was, that said happened, and uh, I was thinking that with all the things that we talked about in the study then happening or supposedly happening on September 11, that perhaps this study wasn't to prevent hijackings, but to help create a cover story for some type of nefarious attack by the Washington, D.C., politicians. All right. I hope you enjoyed our 9-11 20th anniversary special. Thanks to Ryan White and Carlos Kajina. I'll be back next week with a brand new show. Until then, so long for now. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.